Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. Hello and welcome to TGI Crime Day. So it's been a little while. I've been trying to work on getting things set up to where I can do this as a video version podcast as well that will be available on YouTube, but of course trying to get that done has been a pain in the butt. (laughs) So hopefully that is going to be coming soon. I've just had some technical difficulties and then a major issue with my camera, so I won't bore you with all of the details, but just know it's on the horizon. I'm trying to work on getting this into a YouTube version uh, that will have photos and video clips and things like that inserted into it. Uh, I just don't know when that will be happening. Hopefully soon. The YouTube channel is up. Like I said, I was ready. I was like ready to pull the trigger. Everything was going really well. And then all of a sudden I sat down this morning to film the first YouTube version and my camera does not record for more than 45 seconds. It's been extremely frustrating. Okay, sorry. I said I wasn't going to bore you with it and then I went into it. If you want to go over and pre-subscribe to my YouTube channel, it's just TGI Crime Day on YouTube. That would be amazing if you want to go and do that. Okay, here we go. Let's get into today's episode. Thank you for being here with me. Today we are taking a trip down a dark history rabbit hole. We are going back in time 100 years to the 1920s. In the early 1900s, scientific advancements were being made and there seemed to be a new discovery around every corner. Scientists and doctors were learning about all new kinds of elements and chemicals and with that came the trial and error of learning which of these were safe and which were destructive. When radium hit the scene, people were fascinated by the brilliant glow and supposed health benefits it promised. However, a group of incredibly brave but extremely unlucky young women would be the ones to truly discover the power of destruction that radium has. Quick reminder that I am unfortunately not a scientist, so allow me to give you the Investigoogler rundown of radium. Radium was first discovered in 1898 by Marie and Pierre Curie. They found radium while studying materials that contain uranium. Uranium gave off electromagnetic radiation that could pass through metal, and they were like, hey, this is pretty neat, what else does it do? Marie realized that a material called pitchblende was giving off more radiation than just uranium could cause, so being a scientific badass, she broke that down and was able to isolate radium. Eventually, they figured out that radium salts could shrink cancerous tumors, and again, the science world asked, what else can it do? This was when radium became the buzzword of the time, and everything from radium toothpaste to radium water was everywhere. They made radium jockstraps and lingerie, radium butter, radium milk. Literally everything had radium in it. It was considered the quote-unquote miracle element. It was like that episode of Spongebob when Spongebob and Patrick are trying to sell those chocolate bars by saying they can do all kinds of ridiculous things. They'll make you fly, they'll make you live forever, you'll be the king of the world, etc. It was like that, except the radium in these products was just as useless as Spongebob's chocolate bars. The amount of radium in these products was so tiny it didn't have any effect on the people who used them, which is actually kind of lucky because, as we already know, but they didn't back in 1900, is that radium can be extremely dangerous but for a while it was romanticized as a fix-all for every occasion. Of course, the high-end radium products were only available for the rich and famous. There was a radium-lined jar that you could add water to and turn it from boring old water to magical radioactive water tonic. The manufacturers recommended drinking seven glasses a day from the radium jar 
and it sold for $200, which is about $6,000 in 2022 money. Eventually, in 1908, Dr. Sabin von Sashaki and William Hammer discovered that radium salt mixed with glue and zinc sulfide could make a glow-in-the-dark paint that they named Undark. Very creative. This glow-in-the-dark paint became a game-changer for many industries. Two major factories our story today focuses on are the United States Radium Corporation and Radium Dial Company. These companies had factories that used radium paint to make watches that could be used by soldiers at war. When World War I began in 1914, the men left their factory jobs to go to war and the women stepped in and took over jobs that they had never done before. This gave women a newfound feeling of pride and responsibility. Hell yes, we love to see it. One of the jobs that was considered very patriotic was to work for one of these companies as dial painters for these glow-in-the-dark watches. Also, before we jump into it, I did want to mention the book that I read for this case. It is called Radium Girls. It's by Kate Moore, and it goes into a super deep dive of a ton of the people that were involved in this case. It goes into way more detail than I could possibly put into a podcast. So if you like this episode, I feel like I'm barely scratching the surface. I can't recommend that book enough. It was very, very good, very well written and extremely detailed. I will tell you, though, I tried to listen to the audiobook of it. I just listened to like a sample, and it's not great narration. Unfortunately, it's very robotic. So if you can get past that and you want to listen to the book, do it. But it is worth a read if you are kind of a dark history geek like I am. Okay, back into our story. So the main factory I'm going to talk about today is the U.S. Radium Corporation that I will refer to as USRC. It was originally named the Radium Luminous Material Corporation and it was in New Jersey. In 1917, the factory opened their doors to a new position working with the quote-unquote miracle element. This job was unlike any other factory job and became a very glamorous job because they didn't call it a factory, they called it a studio. A beautiful studio where the girls would get to work with radium, painting watch dials. Like I mentioned before, radium wasn't available to everyone, it was mainly the richy riches of the world, so the opportunity to work with this elusive product was very appealing. These women, well, girls actually, who were doing this particular job were mostly teenagers as young as 14 years old. There were girls as young as 11 who lied about their age to get this job. Everyone wanted to be working there. At one point, there were 300 girls employed to paint these watches. The studio was set up with big, long rows of tables, and each one had a paintbrush and a tray of watch dials ready to be painted at each station. Each dial was black with white numbers, and the girls would paint over these tiny, tiny numbers with the undark paint. It took a lot of concentration and a lot of skill to paint these tiny, tiny numbers. I mean, imagine. Think about a watch, okay? It's tiny. Each station was set up with a bowl of radium powder that would be mixed with a tiny bit of water and uh, something called gum arabic adhesive that would create the magically glowing paint. It took a lot of care and precision to paint these dials exactly the way they needed to be painted. It was everyone's fear to be taken into the dark room with Miss Rooney, who was the girl's supervisor. Miss Rooney would inspect the dials, and any tiny imperfection had to be fixed. The girls who couldn't get it right would be fired. Precision and speed was key for the dial painters because they were paid per dial. The dial painters were ranked in the top 5% of female wage earners. We love to see it. They were paid about 1.5 cents per watch, which is about $14.50 today. The average worker made about $20 a week, which is equivalent to $370 a week in 2022 money. The fastest style painters could easily double that amount, making up to $3,000 a year, which is about $43,000 today. Isn't inflation horrifying? Anyway, this was a very high-paying job for that time. 
According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average household earned $1,518 in 1918, and some of these girls were making double that working for the U.S. Radium Corporation. This was the job you wanted to get. While the girls worked, radium powder floated around the studio like snowflakes, covering every surface with the glowing dust. At the end of their workdays, the girls would go into the dark room and laugh about how the radium made them all glow in the dark and look spooky and fun. Their hair and clothes and skin and head-to-toe every inch were covered in the wonder element. If a dial painter planned on going out that night, she would wear her best dress to work so that by the end of the day, she would shine for her date. The girls would go out dancing and would literally light up the dance floor. On their walk home, they would glow in the dark streets like ghosts, earning them the nickname the Ghost Girls. The Radium Girls were out there living their best lives, making absolute bank, especially for the times, working at a job with people their own age, meeting and making best friends, and working with Radium, the wonder element that promised youth, better skin, brighter teeth, and everything in between. These girls were on top of the world. Of course, no one bothered to tell them the dangers of radium. While the girls were in the studio, covered in radium dust, the men working down in the labs of that same corporation were wearing lead aprons for protection. The girls had no protective coverings and were even encouraged to put the radium-soaked brushes in their mouths. Like I said earlier, precision was key. The watch faces they painted were only 3.5 centimeters wide, and the numbers were as small as a millimeter. They couldn't go outside the lines at all or they would have to do it over. The paintbrushes they used were really, really tiny camel hair brushes. The problem was that these tiny little brushes would sometimes spread, which would cause all kinds of problems. Think about like when you have a liquid eyeliner that has a brush tip and there's one little hair that gets out of place and you have an extra little streak in your eyeliner every time. I know you know what I mean, maybe. It would be like that, except it had to be so precise. So the girls were encouraged to use what they called the lip pointing technique. They would put the brush between their lips to create that ultra fine point. It became a part of the process. Smooth the brush between the lips, dip in the radium powder, and paint the number. Lip, dip, paint, lip, dip, paint, lip, dip, paint, day in and day out. While the girls were in the studio literally ingesting radium, the scientific minds behind the operation were learning more and more about the dangers of radium. Dr. Sabin von Sashaki, who helped invent the paint, was working closely with the Curies to learn more about radium. Pierre Curie said that he, quote, would not care to trust himself in a room with a kilo of pure radium as it would burn all the skin off his body, destroy his eyesight, and probably kill him, end quote. Not great. Dr. von Sashaki had experienced the dangers of radium personally. Radium had gotten into a cut on one of his fingers, and when he realized, he chopped the tip of this finger off to get the radium out of his body. He knew the dangers. So one day, when he visited the U.S. Radium Corporation, he was walking through the studio, and he saw the girls doing the lip pointing, and he said to one girl, whose name was Grace Fryer, quote, Do not do that. You will get sick. End quote. He, of course, didn't stop to explain what he was talking about or tell the higher-ups that the girls shouldn't be lip pointing. He just kept on walking. This comment spooked Grace Fryer, so she went to their supervisor, Miss Rooney, and told her what Von Sashaki had said, and Miss Rooney assured her that there was nothing dangerous about the tiny amount of radium the girls were working with, that there was nothing to worry about, so they went back to work. Lip, dip, paint, lip, dip, paint, lip, dip, paint, on and on it went. For a time, the girls had water bowls that they could use to rinse their brushes instead of doing the lip pointing, but as soon as the boss, Mr. Savoy, realized that every time they rinsed their brushes in the water, tiny radium particles would settle at the bottom of the bowl. 
can't waste valuable material that hurts the bottom line. So the water bowls were taken away and the girls were left with no choice but to continue the lip pointing. These tiny numbers had to be perfect and the girls were paid per dial. So they did what they had to to get the work done. The effects of ingesting radium were very small at first, but what we know now is that radium can destroy cancerous cells, but it can also destroy healthy cells. It doesn't really care which cells are which, it just knows how to destroy. There were a few girls who got sores in their mouths after a few weeks of working with the radium, but the majority of the girls didn't have any symptoms or issues at first. One girl named Katherine Schaub broke out in weird pimples that wouldn't go away. She was only 15, so they assumed it was just teenage hormones, but when she went to a doctor, he did a blood test and noticed that she had significant changes to her blood. He asked her if she worked with phosphorus, which was a well-known industrial poison, and she was like, nope, just radium, and the doctor probably said, oh, you're so lucky, and he sent her on her way. There had been one warning from Dr. Von Sashaki, but soon after, he was actually kicked out of his own company. His co-founder, George Willis, sold a huge share to Arthur Roeder, who eventually fired both of the co-founders. So now there was really no one trying to make sure that the radium was being used safely. Over time, the small symptoms like pimples and mouth sores turned into much, much worse. In 1921, Molly Maggia, who had worked at USRC for a couple of years, started having horrible toothaches. She finally went to see Dr. Neff, a local dentist, in hopes of having some relief for her pain. He quickly realized that she had some kind of infection and removed the tooth that was bothering her. However, days, then weeks, then months went by and the extraction never healed. Over the next few months, she had more and more teeth removed. Dr. Neff noticed that while he was doing these extractions, her teeth were coming out so easily, he barely had to do any work. And again, none of these extractions would heal. Her teeth were literally rotting in her mouth and her condition was similar to what Dr. Neff saw in phosphorus poisoning. He decided to do some research into the plant Molly worked at, but was essentially pushed out the doors and told to mind his own business. USRC was making so much money, they did not want anyone sniffing around or making dangerous claims. Over time, Molly's agony continued, her mouth was full of sores, and she could barely speak or eat. She finally quit her job when her pains started to spread from her mouth to the rest of her body. They assumed that she had rheumatism in her hips and feet, and she hobbled everywhere with a cane. On her last visit to Dr. Neff, they decided it was time to remove her lower jaw completely because the infection was so bad. When he tried to remove it, her jaw literally crumbled in his hands. Molly's entire life was one painful day after another. She developed anemia and became even more weak, and in September of 1922, poor Molly, who was only 24 years old, died a very painful death. Since the physicians weren't sure what was actually wrong with her and her symptoms all pointed to it, her cause of death was listed as syphilis, which at the time was considered a very sad and shameful death because it's an STD, which is ridiculous, first of all, because she didn't even die from syphilis. But even if she did, let's not slut shame, okay? 1920s? Jeez Louise. Molly wasn't the only one who experienced the horrible aftermath of working with radium. Several other girls began to develop the same problems with their teeth and jaws and also became anemic. Another dentist, Dr. Barry, started seeing the girls and tried to help them with the pain the same way Dr. Neff did, but he also couldn't figure out what was going on. By the time he saw a third patient who was dealing with these same issues, who also previously worked at USRC, he started putting the pieces together. Finally, a health inspector was sent to the factory to see what was going on, and of course, USRC did everything they could to defend the company. 
Harold Veet, one of the vice presidents, took the inspector around the factory. When they got to the painting studio, the health inspector noticed the lip pointing happening and he called it out. And Harold was quick to say that he, quote, warned them time and again to stop this dangerous practice, but he could not get them to stop, end quote. Because why? They're toddlers. And every time you yanked the paintbrush out of their mouth, they put it back. Any of the dial painters could have told the inspector that aside from the one-off comment from Sabin von Sashaki, they had never been told not to lip point. In fact, they were told over and over again how safe it was and that they could even benefit from ingesting the radium. Also, I should mention, when all of these health issues started to come up, most of these girls were no longer working for USRC. Otherwise, they probably would have connected the dots a lot quicker. Unfortunately, they were going to different dentists and different doctors, and it took a while for everyone to communicate and see that overlap. While certain groups were starting to see the dangers of radium, there were just as many positive publications still praising radium, so no one really realized what was going on. The problem was that most of these positive publications were being put out by the radium corporations. Most of the researchers worked for the radium companies. So when one man, Dr. Martin Zamatolsky, published a paper diving into the dangers of radium poisoning, it was brushed off because the positive research was so much more prevalent. Dr. Zamatolsky had evidence to back up his claims the women who worked for USRC were all suffering from a disease similar to phosphorus poisoning, and after conducting multiple tests... He found that there was no phosphorus in the paint they'd been using. So, the logical conclusion was that the radium had to be the cause of their illnesses. But no one wanted to listen to logic. They only wanted to make money. As another year passed, more girls started showing symptoms and dealing with the horrible infections in their mouths and in their bones. Many of them experienced pains in their backs, hips, and ankles. Some of the girls became crippled and could barely walk, and some of them noticed that one of their legs was getting shorter. More of them died without conclusive answers as to what was killing them, and they were spending money they didn't have on doctor visits that gave them no relief and no answers. Eventually, a lot of the girls started going to Dr. Barry for treatment, and he started making some noise about their condition and pointing to the Radium Corporation as the problem. USRC, of course, hated this. They did everything they could to fight against Dr. Barry's claims. Some of the girls and Dr. Barry tried to complain to the health inspector, but nothing was being done to look into the working conditions at the factory. However, when some of the girls threatened to make legal claims against the company, that got their attention. They decided to launch an investigation, not because it was the right thing to do, or because they cared about the lives of their workers at all, but because a legal claim would be bad for business. After a lot of drama... USRC finally said they would do blood tests on the factory workers, but again, the people doing the test worked for them. They told all the workers that their blood test came back totally normal and that everything was fine. There was a study done by Dr. Cecil Drinker that gave USRC results they just didn't want to hear. He went over and over the ingredients in the paint and concluded that radium was extremely poisonous and going to cause problems for people who interacted with it. He discovered that radium is similar to calcium because it seeks out bones. The radium fooled the women's bodies into thinking it was calcium and then deposited into their bones and started eating away at them from the inside out. He also did blood tests for all of the women, including the ones still working for USRC. Not one of them had quote-unquote normal blood. Even people who had only worked at the plant for a couple of weeks showed changes in their blood, but these results were never shared with the women. USRC president... Arthur Rowiter, 
we hate to see him, decided that this information wasn't important, and he never released it after getting the info from Dr. Drinker. Meanwhile, Dr. Neff, who had worked with Molly Maggia before she passed away, found something shocking. He was so confused by the condition of Molly's jaw that he kept it to study later. Somehow it was just put into a desk drawer because, you know, it was the 1920s, he just threw it in a drawer. But one day, Dr. Neff opened this drawer to find that the x-ray film that was in the drawer with the jawbone fragments had been completely ruined. They had clouded because they'd been exposed to something. Of course, Dr. Neff didn't know at the time, but it was because the bone fragments were radioactive. On June 7th, 1925, the first male employee of USRC died, and that finally got some attention. The man who passed away was Dr. Lehman, who was the chief chemist at USRC. He had laughed when Dr. Drinker expressed concerns about blackened lesions on his hands during his study of the company. Dr. Lehman got ill and passed away very suddenly, which is why Dr. Martland was invited in to do an autopsy. Along with Dr. Von Sashaki, Dr. Martland tested Dr. Lehman's tissues and bones in the Radium Factory's lab. USRC asked Martland to promise to keep his conclusions secrets. Good, good, good. Let's keep hiding our shady BS. I guess Dr. Martland was like, sure, your secret is safe with me, because they were able to conduct a test that would show the very first measurement of radioactivity in a human body. They reduced Lehman's bones to ash and then tested that ash with an electrometer. This test proved that Lehman had died from radium poisoning. His remains were extremely radioactive. At this point, more and more women who had worked for USRC were showing all these same symptoms, getting no answers, and slowly deteriorating in hospital beds. Around and around they were shuffled, with more and more medical bills, but still no answers. Finally, they had someone in their corner. Dr. Martland and Dr. Von Sashaki decided to create some kind of a test to prove that the women were suffering from radium poisoning, because currently, the only test they had access to was the one that they did for Dr. Lehman's remains. Obviously, they couldn't test the women's bodies the same way that they had tested Dr. Lehman's bones. So, they came up with two different testing methods. First was the gamma ray test. The patient would sit in front of an electroscope that read the gamma radiation coming from their bones. The second test was called the expired air method. The patient would blow through a series of bottles through an electroscope that would measure the amount of radon in their breath. The theory was that if there was radium in the girl's jaws, the toxic gas would be exhaled as they breathed out. One girl, Sarah Malifer, was extremely ill. She shared a hospital room with her sister, Marguerite Carlo, both of them suffering similar symptoms after working for USRC. Sarah was septic. She had a bad leg that was so painful it consumed her entire life. She had sores in her mouth that would not stop bleeding, but she was a fighter, and she did everything she could to help with the tests. First, they conducted the gamma ray test. Dr. Martland used the electrometer to test Sarah's bones. Again, not a scientist, so I'll do my best to explain this how I understood. The book Radium Girls said, quote, A normal leak would be 10 subdivisions in 60 minutes. Sarah's body was leaking 14 subdivisions in the same time. End quote. I don't know exactly what that means, but I do know it's not good. The second test was very difficult for Sarah to complete. The expired air test required her to breathe into a tube for 30 minutes. Sarah was nearly delusional with the pain from her leg, and she barely knew what was going on, but she fought so hard to breathe normally for five minutes through the pain. She was able to complete the test. The healthy result would have been five subdivisions in 30 minutes, Sarah's breath tested at 15.4 in 30 minutes. Sadly, Sarah passed away a few days after this test. 
Dr. Martland did an autopsy the day she died and performed the tests on her bones. This time, though, he hadn't made any promises to a stupid corporation to keep the results a secret. Dr. Martland went to the media that day and said, quote, If my suspicions are correct, this poison is so insidious and sometimes takes so long to manifest itself that I think it is possible that it has been going on for a long time without being discovered, end quote. Of course, the United States Radium Corporation was quick to fire back against Dr. Martland. Dr. Flynn, who was the USRC company doctor, said it was, quote, absurd to think the same condition could have caused the deaths of Dr. Lehman and Sarah Malifer. The latter could not have handled, in 100 years of her work, half the amount of radium Dr. Lehman handled in one year. The amounts handled by Sarah were so infinitesimal that in the opinion of the company officials, the work could not be considered as hazardous, end quote. It's truly a circus act the way this corporation jumped through hoops to deny, deny, deny. It's just a coincidence that she was radioactive. Sure, Dr. Lehman handled more radium than she did, but he was wearing a lead vest and she was literally eating it. Dr. Martland finished his autopsy and sure enough, her whole body was riddled with decay. Her left leg that had been so painful for four years was four centimeters shorter than her right leg. He opened up her leg bones to look at the marrow and found it was dark red where it should have been yellow, healthy marrow. As far as that quote-unquote infinitesimal amount of radium goes, Dr. Martland found her body had 180 micrograms of radium, a tiny amount, but it was 180 micrograms more than there should ever be in a human body. Literally all of her organs and all of her bones were radioactive. Dr. Martland discovered that the radium in her bones would keep living for centuries after she died. The radium inside of her has a half-life of 1,600 years. A half-life is the amount of time it would take for half of the radium isotopes to decay if I understand correctly. I still can't wrap my brain around why they don't just say 3,200 years, why a half-life, whatever. I'm not a scientist. It's a crap ton of years, and her bones will still be emitting radioactivity in thousands of years from now. That summed it up fine, right? I really tried to figure out and understand the half-life thing, but I'm sorry. I just, if you happen to know how this works, explain it to me like I'm in kindergarten, okay? <laughs> Now that Dr. Martland could prove that radium poisoning was really killing people, he was armed with knowledge to use against the giant stupid corporation. The problem was that there was no way to undo what had been done by the radium. There was no cure. Radium poisoning was a death sentence. When Dr. Drinker found out that more of the girls were suffering and dying from radium poisoning, he was pissed. He had tried to warn USRC before that radium was dangerous, but they had brushed him off and refused to publish his test results. So, Dr. Drinker threatened to publish his report. USRC was quick to respond with a threat that if he published his report, they would sue. Dr. Drinker didn't care, and he published the report like a badass. Once the report was published, it got the girls a lot of public support, which the radium corporations tried to squash as quickly as possible. They did everything to keep the Department of Labor, medical community, and even their current dial painters away from the knowledge that radium poisoning was actually killing people. But it was too late. The cat was out of the bag. And even though they did their best to spin any lie or excuse possible, USRC was getting a ton of backlash. We love to see it. More of the original dial painters joined Marguerite, Hazel, and Sarah in their fight to find a lawyer that was going to get the girls justice. 
There was no cure for the radium poisoning, but they were finally being offered hope that they could do something to move against USRC. The main thing that was stopping them from getting justice was that, if I understand correctly, radium poisoning was finally recognized by the Workmen's Compensation Bureau as a work hazard, but there was a statute of limitations put on it. A five-month statute of limitations, which is a huge issue because, first of all, when the girls started showing symptoms, no one believed it could have been radium poisoning because it wasn't actually recognized as a thing. And second of all, they didn't start showing symptoms right away. The radium took years to do the damage it did. The problem was that once the ball was rolling, their body started shutting down really quickly. They gathered as many of the dial painters as they could and performed the radium breath tests on each of them to help build the case. They also tested Dr. Von Sashaki, whose breath contained more radium than anyone else's. Dr. Martland, along with Katherine Schaub, made a list of all the original dial painters who she knew were sick or already dead. She called it the list of the doomed, and in all, she gave Dr. Martland about 50 names. The women's suffering continued on and on. Mouth sores, nerve damage, arthritis, anemia, spontaneous bone fractures. Many of them suffered from infertility, and at least one woman went through the agony of a stillbirth. These tragedies and deaths still weren't enough for USRC, who was still loudly and publicly trying to discredit the women. They had the freaking audacity to point the finger at Dr. Drinker and Dr. Martland, saying that they were skewing the test results and publishing false information, because their in-house doctor, Dr. Flynn, had done several studies and didn't see any issues with radium poisoning. Piece of crap, USRC vice president said, quote, His article is some of their propaganda. I understand Flynn's report is to be published soon. His findings have been entirely negative, and I think his report represents a very good piece of work. End quote. Sorry, but let's get a non-biased doctor to talk about what's happening at URRC, not someone who literally is being paid to keep the reports a secret. Vice President Barker would have probably been pretty shocked to know that his precious Dr. Flynn had written a letter to Dr. Drinker that said, quote, though I am not saying it out loud, I cannot help but feel that the paint is to blame for the girl's conditions. End quote. That's great, dude. Keep taking those fat paychecks and helping USRC continue screwing people over. Yikes of bikes, I can't stand it. Okay, moving on. It took a lot of back and forth, and there were lawyers who didn't want to represent the girls. There was a ton of pushback from USRC about going to court, but finally, one of the women found a lawyer who was willing to take on their case, and in 1925, the Radium girls fought back against a giant corporation that ruined their lives. USRC eventually settled three cases out of court in an effort to keep it on the down low. The families of Marguerite Carlo, Sarah Malifer, and Hazel Couser received settlements, and the USRC agreed to take responsibility for their deaths and paid these families. The payment barely made a dent in the medical debt and unimaginable suffering that they went through, but it was better than nothing. Seeing this settlement happen sparked a new life in five of the original girls. They hired a young lawyer named Raymond Berry, who agreed to represent them. He was ready to put up a huge fight against USRC, and he did everything imaginable to get justice for the five radium girls. In the summer of 1927, Grace Fryer, Catherine Schwab, Quinta McDonald, Albina Larice, and Edna Hussman became known as, quote, the women doomed to die. The media went wild for their story, and they got so much public support and sympathy, it was incredible. Of course, USRC fought back. They hired private detectives to follow the five girls around, looking for anything to ruin their reputations. They called the lawsuits a conspiracy and went as far as to say it was the girls' fault that they got radium poisoning. That's right. Their response to the lawsuit was that the girls were, quote, guilty of contributory negligence in failing to exercise due care and precaution for their safety, end quote. Yep. 
Then USRC went as far as to say that they didn't give warnings to the girls not to lip point because the company was still going with the radium isn't dangerous shtick. So which is it? The girls gave them radium poisoning or radium poisoning doesn't exist because it can't be both. The victim blaming and slut shaming continued when they brought up Molly Maggia's death certificate because she had allegedly died from syphilis. USRC had the audacity to make the suggestion that maybe since they were all, quote, girls of her sort, that they all had syphilis. Garbage humans worked for USRC. Absolute trash. Okay, I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of the trial because I honestly could talk about it for hours. Again, I highly suggest you read Radium Girls by Kate Moore if you want to do the full deep, deep dive. Basically, it took them forever to finally get the trial going because USRC was stalling as much as possible. A few big things happened all at once and the ball really got rolling in trial proceedings. First of all, Raymond Berry, the girl's lawyer, sorry, I know there are so many people to keep track of, Raymond Berry started to do some digging into USRC's little bestie, Dr. Flynn. He found out that not only was Dr. Flynn making stupid fake reports about the test results, he found out that Dr. Flynn wasn't even a medical doctor. Barry reached out to the New Jersey Board of Medical Examiners to get his credentials, and they sent him a letter that said, quote, Our records do not show the issuance of a license to practice medicine and surgery or any branch of medicine and surgery to Frederick B. Flynn. End quote. A liar. A big fat lying liar who lies. Frederick Flynn had a degree in philosophy philosophy and was giving actual medical advice and being treated as an expert used to make a mess out of the results, protecting USRC. For some reason, they let Flynn continue as a specialist along with other company doctors. Such a joke. Next big break in the case was when they decided to exhume Molly Maggia's remains. On October 15, 1927, they opened her coffin and found that the inside of the coffin had, quote, unmistakable signs of radium. The inside of the coffin was aglow with the soft luminescence of radium compounds, end quote. They tested her bones and tissues, and the medical examiner said there was no evidence of any diseases, in particular, no evidence of syphilis. Everything they tested was radioactive. So it wasn't quote-unquote Cupid's disease, as the town gossipers called it. It was radium poisoning that killed Molly Maggia. This discovery would be very helpful in their court case. Each of the girls was put in front of the jury and testified what they'd been going through over the years. They told the stories of their friends dying, the painful sores and medical bills, and the death sentence they'd each essentially been given. These women were incredible. I found myself getting so attached to them as I read the book, and so, like, they felt like they were my friends. Again, read the book. Kate Moore did such a beautiful job um, explaining all of these things. They were all in various states of pain and suffering, but they held their heads up high, they maintained composure, and they told their stories to the court. The reporters and courtroom spectators were all so impacted by their stories that there wasn't a dry eye in the room. Some of the USRC higher-ups also testified and seriously had the balls to say that they had never seen the woman put the dial painting brushes in their mouth. Seriously? Deny, 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 even when it's ridiculous, deny was the strategy for USRC. One of the company lawyers tried to argue that radium poisoning didn't even exist because out of the hundreds of girls who worked for USRC, only five of them had this quote-unquote trouble. To which Dr. Martland replied, quote, There are about 13 or 14 other girls that are dead and buried now who, if you will dig them up, will probably show the same things, 
end quote. Something that was a huge disappointment and a very big bummer and a total shock to the girls and myself while reading the book was when Dr. Von Sashaki, the inventor of the freaking paint and the person who had been on their side with the tests and the research to prove radium poisoning was a real thing, took the stand. Barry called him as a witness and asked him if he had given Grace Fryer the warning not to put the brush in her mouth all those years ago because he knew the dangers of the paint. His response was that he didn't remember if he told her that. Now, we remember. Grace said way earlier that Von Sashaki had seen her lip pointing and told her, quote, do not do that, you will get sick, end quote. But now, on the stand, when it's truth time, Von Sashaki said, quote, there is a possibility I told her that, which would be the perfectly natural thing to do, passing by the plant, seeing the unusual thing of a girl putting a brush to her lips, of course I would say not to do that, end quote. Barry and the girls were probably in shock over this new story he was telling, and Barry pressed him for clarification and was like, okay, but why would you say that? And Von Sashaki said, quote, unsanitary conditions, end quote. Again, Von Sashaki was asked for clarification whether or not he was apprehensive about the radium paint and if it could make the girls sick. And this piece of work said, quote, absolutely not. The danger was unknown to us. Reminder, this is the person who cut off part of his finger because he got radium in a cut and was so worried about it. They were all completely confused, and again, so was I when I read this part in the book. What the hell, dude? Barry was so disgusted with him that he publicly denounced Von Sachaki as a hostile witness. The final shock came when USRC requested a continuance. In my opinion, so they could come up with even more lies and idiotic reasonings because clearly the case was not going well in their favor. But the judge agreed to a continuance, and on April 27th, the hearing came to an end, and a new date of September 24th was set. Five months. The girls were horrified. It was likely that not all of them would even be alive for another five months. Luckily, the freaking icon, Raymond Barry, was on their side. And he thought it was ridiculous to put things on hold for another five months. The main thing was that the court was basically booked until September. Trials can literally take years to complete because of scheduling purposes, but these girls didn't have that kind of time. So Barry was able to find two lawyers who were willing to give up their scheduled court date at the end of May. The judge agreed, and the trial would resume just a month later. Yay! Spoiler alert! The big corporation didn't give a shit about human lives hanging in the balance. They said it would be impossible for them to proceed in May because their experts were going abroad for several months and wouldn't be back until after summer. Barry was like, you gotta be freaking kidding me, and wrote to USRC saying, quote, You must agree that there is a rather harsh irony in the situation which permits the victims of poisoning to languish and die because certain trained men must disport themselves to Europe. End quote. Raymond Barry was such a hero. And the Radium Girls were, of course, absolutely incredible. They were in constant agony. The mental strain of the trials wasn't helping their conditions, but they were all so brave and so strong and so powerful and kept showing up. They kept fighting even though their overall health was declining. Barry saw this and decided to use the media to get things moving again. People loved the Radium Girls and felt horrible about what was happening to them. There was basically an uproar when one of the newspapers published an article about what was going on and that USRC basically tried to wait for the girl's time to run out on its own. Norman Thomas, a socialist politician who was sometimes called the conscience of America, love that nickname, said that this case was, quote, 
a vivid example of the ways selfish capitalist system which cares nothing about the lives of its workers but only seeks to guard its profits end quote hell yeah brother <laughs> basically everyone was pissed at usrc and the execs who were putting these girls through hell so usrc brought in the philosopher dr flynn who had a new super helpful argument since victim blaming and slut shaming hadn't gotten the results they wanted they thought hey let's try something else out and philosophy bro flynn went for the next sexist thing he could come up with the bitches be crazy defense yeah seriously usrc tried to claim that none of the women were sick that they had all worked themselves up into hysteria because you know it's always hysteria when women speak and that it wasn't even a real illness it was just nerves because they were all telling each other how sick they were yeah these women's bones literally glowed in the dark through their skin from the radium eating away at their skeletons from what talking too much shut up dude go go read your philosophy book and uh, get out of our bodies okay <sighs> she's pressed <laughs> moving on luckily that did not go over so well and everyone was outraged by it just like i am it also helped that the girls were absolutely famous and so publicly loved one reporter who interviewed Grace Fryer, who kind of became the leader of the pack, was very moved when Grace told her that she intended to make as much out of her life as she could. She said, quote, My body means nothing but pain to me, and it might mean longer life or relief to others if science had a cure. It's all I have to give. Can you understand why I'm offering it? End quote. Grace wasn't hoping for a cure. She knew that it was too late for that. She was hoping that her pain and suffering could make an impact on humanity. Because again, these women are fearless and incredible, and USRC is full of garbage humans. USRC finally pulled their heads out of their butts long enough to realize that they weren't going to be let off the hook again, so they reached out to a judge named William Clark. Judge Clark was very well-respected and seemed to be a fair judge. He was also Raymond Barry's former boss when Barry had been a clerk. Judge Clark had met with USRC's legal team, a meeting Barry was not invited to, in fact, he found out about the meeting from a reporter who asked him about this meeting. Barry's reply was, quote, I knew nothing about any such arrangements. I am not even considering a settlement out of court, end quote. However, behind the scenes, Barry started to weigh the option of a settlement out of court. The girls were getting sicker by the day, and he didn't know if they were physically or mentally in a place to go to more court days. His mind was made up when Catherine Schaub collapsed in church that Sunday. She was in so much pain, it was almost unbearable, and she told Barry, quote, I can't go on this way. I wish I wasn't going to live another month, end quote. And so with that, Barry decided that the court fights with USRC were going to drag on for months, maybe years, and it was just time the girls did not have. So he allowed Judge Clark to be the mediator between the girls and USRC. In typical fashion, USRC was still on their deny-everything train, and said that they wanted to do what was right, but they would also deny any liability. In my opinion, doing what's right would also include taking responsibility for your crap, but okay. And I'm sure you won't be surprised by this. They offered them a very lowball offer to start. USRC offered each of the women $10,000, which is about $168,000 in 2022 money. The problem was that the cost of the medical bills and the cost of the lawsuit would leave them with pennies. So the girls told USRC to shove their offer where the sun don't shine and try again. The Radium Girls were badasses, and I love them. After some more back and forth, they finally came to an agreement. 
USRC would pay each of the girls $10,000 up front, plus $600 a year uh, for as long as the girls were suffering from radium poisoning, which would be the rest of their lives. USRC also agreed to pay past medical expenses and medical expenses moving forward. They also paid the girls legal fees. All of these were better than Barry had hoped for, and the girls were happy for their settlements. They probably would have been happier if USRC would just take responsibility for their part in the girls' illnesses, but they were never going to get them to admit that, so they took what they could. It's also worth pointing out that USRC didn't do this because they felt bad for what was happening or because they wanted to do the right thing. USRC decided to settle out of court so the bad publicity would go away and they could brush it under the rug easier. They knew from the media coverage and public reactions so far that they were already in hot water, and if more people found out about the Radium Girls, more people who worked for USRC would probably start filing lawsuits of their own. In pre-internet times, it was so much easier to keep these kinds of things quiet, so to preserve their own reputation, they paid the settlement. That didn't stop them from looking for loopholes, though. USRC also added an extra clause to their agreement. In order for the girls to get their yearly payments, they would need to do a medical exam every year to prove they were still sick. To make this as fair as possible, three doctors would examine them. One appointed by the girls, one appointed by the company, and one that they mutually agreed on. I guess that's something, at least having multiple doctors look at them can hopefully get a real, true result. Hopefully, the doctor USRC appointed this time actually had a medical degree. Anyway... The girls spent their summer trying to find some peace after the stress of the trials. Some of the girls took the opportunity to travel with their families and see life outside of New Jersey. Some of the girls were more careful with their settlements and investing it, wanting to make sure that their families would have it after they were gone. Unfortunately, this was not the happy ending that you would hope for any of them. USRC appointed Dr. James Ewing, a radium medicine specialist who had already spoken out against the girls' case and Dr. Lloyd Carver, who was a consultant at a hospital that strongly believed in the use of radium. Both of these doctors basically denied the existence of radium poisoning and were chosen by USRC because they would say that the girls were completely fine and totally healthy. In the fall of 1928, the girls met with doctors for the first time. Since they didn't believe in radium poisoning, it must have been a pretty big shock when doctors Ewing and Carver saw the condition that these women were in. Catherine walked with a limp, and her body was permanently bent over from the state of her bones. Grace had limited movement in her elbows, and what was left of her jawbone was exposed in her mouth. Quinta was in plaster casts, Edna's leg was misshapen, and Albina's hip joints were barely able to move. The doctors did a breath test and were shocked that they all tested positive for radioactivity. Shocked. Couldn't believe it. Radium poisoning didn't exist to them. So their idea of a logical explanation was that the girls were lying. Dr. Ewing accused them of fraud. How in the world they could have made it look like they had radioactive breath, I have no idea. USRC's solution to this was to have the girls go to a hotel where they could completely undress and take the tests again. This time, only Dr. Carver and one other doctor who was also in the pocket of USRC were there. When Barry found out about this, he was furious. The whole point was to have impartial doctors doing this test to get the true and clear results. This was a breach of their agreement. Luckily, one doctor was actually doing their job, the one that was appointed by the girls. Dr. Falia was ready to shout it from the rooftops that no matter what these other doctors were trying to say, the girls were radioactive. USRC was not happy about this because once that story got out, 
more and more women who worked as dial painters started filing lawsuits, represented, of course, by our hero, Raymond Berry. In December of 1928, there was a big radium conference held with multiple doctors and quote-unquote experts and radium company executives. No one bothered to invite any of the dial painters who were walking, talking proof of radium poisoning, and Dr. Von Sashaki, who invented the radium paint, wasn't there because he had passed away the month before from radium poisoning. The conference was essentially a waste of time because the people conducting it were trying to save their own asses from lawsuits. One doctor argued that the dangers of using radium far outweighed the benefits. People were dying from using radium paint so that these companies could make a ton of money. Surely watches were not worth people dying. But the radium companies didn't care what anyone said. Luminous watches made up 85% of one company's profits, far too lucrative to give up. So the conference accomplished nothing. People who weren't being hurt by radium all agreed to keep doing what they were doing, and they all went home to their McMansions in their expensive cars and went to sleep on their pillows made of money without giving a second thought to the people working in their factories who were literally dying to allow these executives to live the lifestyle they did. Eat the rich. Okay, moving on. Sorry. You know what? No, I'm not sorry. This sucks. Okay, we're going to put a pin in the Radium Corporation's BS for a minute and talk about the Radium Girls. It's often very hard to find information about these victims in cases from so long ago, but the Radium Girls book, again, I, I'm sorry, I can't stop recommending it. It was so good. The Radium Girls book has amazing information about each and every woman. I think it's important to learn as much as possible about who these victims were before they were victims. Quinta McDonald was born on Valentine's Day in 1900. She was the fifth child born in her family, which is why they named her Quinta, which means fifth. So cute. I love that so much. Before working as a dial painter, Quinta worked as a stenciler for a music role company. Both of these jobs required precision and attention to detail. Quinta was described as an extremely attractive woman with large gray eyes and long, dark hair. She was 16 when she started working at USRC with her sisters, Molly and Albina. She loved playing card games, checkers, and dominoes. She met her best friend Grace Fryer, a fellow dial painter, and they were inseparable. Quinta had a hard time after the trial. She had been in plaster casts for a long time because her bones were deteriorating. She could barely hold herself up, and eventually in November of 1929, she could no longer move and had to be spoon-fed for three weeks. There was a very short time where she seemed to be getting better, she was in the hospital, but she was chatting with her friends. She had a good attitude, and they hoped that she would somehow pull through. Unfortunately, that didn't last long, and she slipped into a coma and eventually died in December of that year. She was only 29 years old. She left behind a husband and two kids. They realized she had a massive tumor on her leg that was causing a lot of the swelling. This tumor was similar to ones found in other radium poisoning deaths. An autopsy was performed that proved she died of radium poisoning. She was buried next to her sister, Molly, who was the first of the dial painters to die from radium poisoning. Albina Maggiellarice was 21 years old when she started working for USRC. She was third of the seven daughters born to Italian immigrant parents. Albina was really tiny, only four foot eight, and had beautiful dark hair and dark eyes like her sisters. She had quit her job as a hat trimmer to care for her mom when she got sick and was excited to get back to working. Her friends called her Bina. Albina was 25 when she married her husband, James. She was the eldest unmarried sister in her family, and she felt so old getting married at 25 years old, which I think if you grew up in Utah, you understand that feeling very well. It was around the time that she got married that she started to feel the effects of radium in her joints. Albina went through the tragedy of a stillbirth, followed by more pains in her knee. 
She was put in a plaster leg cast for months, but it didn't help at all. Her leg began to shorten, and she walked with a limp. She passed away at age 51 on November 18, 1946, just two weeks before she and James would have celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary. Her autopsy showed a leg sarcoma, just like her sister Quinta. Catherine Schaub was only 14 when she started working at USRC in 1917. She was one of the first girls to become a dial painter, and she was thrilled at the opportunity. Catherine was very imaginative. She dreamed of becoming an author one day. She was 5'4", with a fashionable blonde bob and sparkling blue eyes. Catherine was very independent, and when she turned 18 in the summer of 1920, she wasn't in a hurry to settle down like some of her friends. She later wrote, quote, I wasn't making anything for my hope chest, so while the girls worked, I played the piano and sang songs that were popular in those days. Catherine was the dial painter who broke out in pimples that were blamed on hormones, but when she saw a doctor, they noticed the changes in her blood. She was one of the first to start telling the other dial painters to be wary of the radium paint. A group of them confronted their boss, who told them all to calm down. There was nothing to worry about, and Catherine felt a little silly for making such a fuss, but she had been right all along. Catherine started having problems with her teeth and gums, and she was one of the loudest voices trying to get justice from USRC during the trials. After the trials, eventually USRC decided that they were no longer going to cover the girls' medical costs and tried to make them all see doctors chosen by USRC poking and prodding and doing all kinds of tests. Catherine once said, quote, I have suffered my share and refused to see these doctors anymore. I love it. She stood up for herself against these ridiculous things that she was being put through and her bravery affected a lot of people. The doctors really resented Catherine for this and called her stubborn when she said she didn't want to have her leg amputated as a test to see if it would get rid of the radium poisoning. One doctor complained that she was difficult to handle and that he was, quote, at a loss what to do with this highly hysterical woman, end quote. We hate to see it. Catherine eventually did decide to have her leg amputated in 1933, but by that time it was too late. She was not well enough to go through that intensive of surgery and recovery, and this news was devastating. Catherine died on February 18, 1933, at only 30 years old. Catherine did accomplish her dream of becoming a published writer, of course not in the way she would have hoped, but she did write and publish a memoir before she passed. Edna Bowles was 16 when she started working for USRC as a dial painter. Edna was described as, quote, blessed from birth with a sunny disposition. She was five foot five and elegant. Her friends nicknamed her the Dresden doll because of her golden hair and fair skin. She had a stunning smile and loved music. Edna married her husband, Louis, in 1922. The couple never had children, but they did have a small white terrier that they loved. Edna was no longer working for USRC when they asked if they could perform tests on her. She had knee pains, but didn't feel any serious symptoms. Dr. Flynn, you know, the philosopher, performed tests on her and told her that her health was perfect, which was, of course, a lie. In 1925, Edna started showing symptoms that doctors thought was rheumatism, but the treatment didn't help. She would stumble often and feel pains in her hips, and her left leg was an inch shorter than her right. On one stumble, she didn't fall, but was in so much pain that her husband took her to the doctor. An x-ray showed that her leg was broken. She had fractured her femur spontaneously from a stumble. Her doctor had never seen anything like this in a patient so young, but she believed, Dr. Flynn, that she was healthy, so they put her in a cast and sent her home. She spent a whole year with that cast on her leg. Edna died on March 30, 1939, at age 37. She had good spirits and courage until the very end. They had also discovered a sarcoma in her leg in her autopsy. Grace Fryer was 18 when she started working for USRC. She had been working for a few years and was very career-driven when she switched over to working for USRC. 
She came from a family of 10 kids, and her dad was a delegate for the Carpenters Union, and growing up in the Friar House meant you learned to have a strong work ethic. She was thrilled at the chance to work for USRC as a dial painter and quickly became one of the company's fastest workers, painting 250 dials per day, which meant this girl was making great money. In her off work times, she loved to dance and was often the host of parties for her friends during Prohibition. Remember, Grace was the girl who had been given the off-handed warning from Dr. Von Sashaki not to touch the paint to her mouth, which, again, he later denied. Grace didn't stay with USRC very long after the war ended, and she went on to have a successful job at a bank. Grace endured the same symptoms as her friends, starting with the painful toothaches and extractions that just wouldn't heal. When Grace finally had it confirmed that radium poisoning was what was causing all of her problems, she launched herself into a fight against USRC, and as I mentioned before, she became sort of the leader of the radium girls. She was very vocal in their struggles and did media interviews as often as she could, and people fell in love with her. She fought hard for her justice and even harder for her friends. Grace was brave in the face of death and had always accepted her fate. She knew she couldn't recover, and she did her best to enjoy the life she had left and used her illness as a way to help other people from going through the same things moving forward. Her mom said that Grace was never afraid of death, that the suffering of life was much harder for Grace to deal with. Grace passed away on October 27, 1933. Her death certificate was labeled that she was killed by radium sarcoma industrial poisoning. Her death was reported in the papers, and the public mourned the loss of this woman that they'd come to know and love. Grace was forever known, and will forever be known, as the girl who kept fighting even when all hope was gone. The pain and suffering that these women went through and their fight for justice actually brought the attention to some of the horrible working conditions that factory workers dealt with during this time. This attention eventually led to positive changes in working conditions and the formation of the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration. A quote from HistoryNet.com said it perfectly, so I'm going to just let this speak for itself. The scientific community in the early 1900s promoted radioactivity as safe and harmless, and non-scientists were reluctant to question or criticize. The Radium Girls challenged the power and claims of a major corporation and, in doing so, not only warned the public of the deadly effects of radium, but also illuminated the danger of trusting blindly in new discoveries and technologies." End quote. The bravery these women faced in going up against these huge corporations was a stepping stone for other people to come forward and demand change and demand that corporations take responsibility for their own actions. Unfortunately, the Radium Girls had to sacrifice so much, including their lives, to make these changes happen. And as I'm sure you know, in many places, factory workers still face horrible and often dangerous working conditions. There's still a very long way to go, but thanks to the Radium Girls, there were a lot of adjustments made over the last hundred years, and hopefully those continue moving forward. These changes definitely didn't happen overnight, and even after the trials and settlements with the five women, USRC and other corporations fought for the usage of radium because they didn't care that the side effects were harmful as long as that money kept rolling in. It wasn't until 1968 that radium was finally banned from being used in consumer products. I feel like I could do a whole second part about the environmental impact USRC had on the area around their factory, but I'll try to make this snappy. Basically, the whole building was radioactive, and they were also dumping radioactive waste into a nearby landfill. An article published in 1983 by Mark A. Stewart talks about the beginning steps of the cleanup of the USRC factory. The factory itself was demolished, good riddance, goodbye, uh, but that didn't change the fact that the ground was full of radiation. 
A test was done at the site in 1979 by the Department of Environmental Protection that found that the gamma radiation levels were off the charts. They also found that the homes in the area had been affected by the poison oozing out of the factory and had to plan a whole cleanup for these neighborhoods as well. By the time they figured this out, USRC was long out of business and couldn't even be sued for damages. So the cleanup process had to be paid for through taxes and for the people who had been screwed over by USRC for decades. Lovely. Luckily, this is where Superfund came into play. Superfund is a government program that provides funds to the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, to clean up contaminated areas. Superfund either goes after the corporation that did the damage, or if they aren't able to do that, like in this case, Superfund provides the funds to do the cleanup. The EPA started excavating the area to get rid of all the contaminated materials at the factory site and 250 residential and commercial properties. In that article from 1983, Mark Stewart estimated that cleanup of the site would take up to two years. It wasn't until 2009 that it was no longer considered a Superfund site. During that time, and even now, there are more areas that need to be cleaned up from the damages done by the radiation corporations over 100 years ago, because as we learned, radium never goes away. Obviously, the problem is that we don't know what we don't know. There are risks with every new element, chemical, technology, etc., but... There were signs pretty early on that if the companies had paid attention, the level of harm could have been significantly decreased. But again, just trying to make that money. Yikes of bikes. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up before I go on a rant about protecting the environment because I've already done my rant quota for the episode. <laughs> Thank you so much for hanging in with me through this very long episode. I hope you found it interesting. I feel like I barely scratched the surface of this dark history story, so I highly recommend, again, I'm going to tell you again, read that freaking book. If you are a dark history nerd like I am, take that deep dive. I'll put all my sources and book recommendations on my website, tgicrimeday.com. Um, I'm also going to start doing episode recaps for each one of these that has the photos and a list of all my sources. So if you want to dive into any of the topics that I cover, um, you'll be able to do that. And don't forget to keep an eye out for the YouTube version of this podcast. I'm still working on trying to get that all figured out. It's going to happen. I just don't know when. Um, also, I'm sorry that I have now lost my voice by the end of this episode. I had to record this over a couple of days and I've got a little sinus thing happening. So thanks for sticking here with me. Thanks for sticking it out. Please make sure that you subscribe. And if you liked this episode, um, maybe share it and, and, and talk to me over on Instagram and tell me your thoughts. Thank you for being here. You're amazing. I'm going to wrap it up and quit rambling. Bye.